they are first generation American uh, Nigerians living in America and other parts in the world that are killing it. Mm. In it in everything they're doing, be it um, they're like top notch. And you know, even in their homes, their marriages, they're doing fine. There is mm. a love, there is affection, and you know, I think because you know, they said uh, bad news travels faster, there, there's more concentration on you know the negative part of the marriages, but there are lovely marriages out there, and that's what I can speak of. Welcome to the Happy African Marriage Podcast, a show where we empower, equip, and encourage you to build a stronger marriage in these modern times, even if you're raising a family. We are Dr. Eben and David, a Christian couple, happily married life partners, parents of three, and marriage partnership coaches. If you're ready to build an enriching marriage partnership for a peaceful, thriving, and unified home, and a lasting legacy of impact for future generations, this podcast was made for you. So, stay tuned. Be prepared to be empowered and inspired to build the happy African marriage you truly desire. I mean, make we talk the matter. Hi friend, thank you for joining us for another inspiring episode. Get ready to listen to an insightful conversation with a special guest on the show. Do follow along as we delve into the following topic for discussion. Adapting and finding a balance in marriage, men's mental health, having a support system and seeking help while living in the diaspora. Today, you'll be listening to part one of a two-part interview. The full interview was recorded on International Men's Day and it includes a segment for discussion on encouragement and inspiration for individuals, especially men, to be more proactive about their mental health and wellness. So stay tuned and don't go away. God bless you and yours. Hello friends and welcome to another exciting episode on this show. Today I have a guest in the house who I'll be introducing shortly. It's a pleasure to have him here. I'll just get right into it. So I have Brian Badger. Actually, he is a doctor. He earned his undergraduate degree in psychology from Baylor State University. He then relocated to the United States and obtained a master's degree in forensic psychology from Agassi University in Los Angeles. Brian furthered his education with a doctorate in clinical psychology at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, Los Angeles. Brian Badger has worked with children, adolescents, families, couples, and adults of various ages. He has experience in individual psychotherapy, group therapy, facilitating relationship skills, workshops, coaching, parenting, and co-parenting classes. And so I present to you, Dr. Brian Badger. You're welcome to this podcast, sir. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. So we'll get straight into the, the questions. And my first question for you is this. Who is Brian Badger without the clinical psychologist hat on? Now it's become a little more harder to distinguish, uh, to kind of separate uh, the whole um, professional aspect of me because it's like it's like my entire life right now and it's, it's kind of you know consumes you know the entire day and then the entire week for me to, to try to take 
that out of the picture. It's a, I'm, I'm just that, uh, that fun loving guy. I just like having fun. I like the outdoors. I love traveling. You know, I am, uh, I'm that one guy who call at 11.59, hey, let's leave town. You know, I'll just hop into the car and into whatever, whatever you want. I'm very structured. I, uh, I work with my schedule so much such that friends that know me know that on Thursday at 2 p.m. they know what I'm doing exactly. On Friday at 6 p.m., my, all my friends know where I'm at. That's uh, Brian in a nutshell, a uh, very familiar oriented. I, uh, that's Brian for you. Well, pleased to meet you. Thank so, you. You know, um, mental health is a very complex um, subject. And, and I'm just wondering if you could just let our listeners know why the focus on mental health and why go through the rigorous education and, you know, licensed process to become a clinical psychologist. What actually intrigues you about the profession? Well, it, it's funny, but it started because uh, my mom was actually a psychologist. Mm. You know, so I grew up in a, I grew up in a in a house where my siblings and I kind of felt that our mom could read minds because <laughs> she was a psychologist. And you know how mothers are; you go, uh, she goes out of the house and she comes back and knows exactly who did what. You know, so if you break a cup or plate. And she comes back, she could look at our faces and know who did it. And so for some reason, we always kind of felt she was able to tell because she, uh, um, you know, she studied psychology. You know, so that kind of drew me into the field. That kind of made me feel like this is something I want to do. I want to grow up and at some point be able to read people's minds and know what they, are, they do, you know. I got into the field and, you know, later realized that's not what psychology really is. You know, but um, it was still it, it was still intriguing. It was really, really an intriguing field. But you know, at some point, especially when I got into the uh, later part of my graduate level and all of that, I realized how much impact um, this field actually does to people. And now more than ever, you know, I'm so glad that I got into the field because you know you see the difference you make in people's lives. See how people change from the very first day they walk into those four walls, or even if you're seeing them, you know, online now as it is, um, just imaginary four walls. You see how they look and how they feel from the very first day to subsequent sessions. And you know, emotionally, even physically, and yeah, I always wanted to help as much as much people as I can in any way I can. You know, so it just happened that. My field of study, my my current profession, it's uh, was that. That's good. So, you you talked of your studies, you talked of um, mother's influence and <laughs> the reading minds. I I think at times with even as old as I am, I still feel today that my mom reads minds because even yes. though she's far away from me, there are times she just makes this call. How are you doing? And I'm mm. like, okay, um, yeah, I'm pretty. Maybe not too well, mm. and you know all that. But anyway, yeah. so you, you you did write a paper that was one that was very in, interesting to me. I think that the first time it was mentioned was when we met at the um, mental conversations. 
Hmm. You know, and and uh, Bomai exposed you then. You had just um, gotten your doctorate and you were feeling very humble about it and did not want us to know. But somehow Bomai leaked that out and you you did talk of your findings in regards to your paper, which is factors affecting the mental health and assimilation of first-generation Nigerian-Americans. And knowing fully well that our podcast is, is directed towards Africans in the diaspora, we, we thought it's needful to get your expertise on it. So what's made you pick this topic? The topic itself is... Um... Is a phenomenological um, research. It, it, it's, um, it's, it's, it's my own lived experience. It's what I actually experienced, you know. So when I was, uh, this is something that I, I had already, um, you know, had, I had thought about, you know, but I, I didn't really think of, I didn't think I'll ever have to write a paper about it, but really every, every part of my life, I experienced the assimilation aspect of it. it um, accent, be it the way we study, be it, you know, pronunciations, be it, there's just so many things that have to do with, you know, you moving from one, one part of the country, one part of the world to another. You know, I, I, I moved out here after my, um, my, uh, my bachelor's and now I wasn't, a, I wasn't, I wasn't very young, you know, coming out here. And that's one of the reasons why I actually singled out, you know, first generation, because, it uh, is a different experience, you know, with the first generation than Nigerian American kids that are actually born in the United States. Because being born, and I see the, I see the difference between, you know, how I am assimilating into this culture, and then how my my nieces and my nephews, my brothers and my sisters' kids in the United States, how they're growing up, and sometimes you hear them correct me, even how I pronounce some words. You know, I say something and, you know, say, uncle, oh, this is how it's pronounced, uh, you know. And because this is all they know, you know, I, I, I grew up from childhood to um, adolescence to, and then all the way to adulthood before having to leave Nigeria. So every single thing I knew changed when I came out here. And so I wanted to talk about that to leave the experience, you know, that, you know, what I experienced. And I wanted to have an opportunity to share this with the world and to share this with the rest of uh, with, with, with other Nigerians, other Africans, and it was so interesting that it was the the experience was almost the same was the same with every single person, mm. you know, even down to as a matter of fact, because it was um it was a qualitative study, so um I interviewed them and you could notice that some of the examples being given in 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 one of the questions I asked were so similar that that even you you see how you come to an intersection where. Everybody just knows that if it's four-way in a section, then one person goes, the next one goes, you go, they go. There's just no one needs to tell you. And no one actually really told me that this is what I needed to do at an intersection. But when I got there, I noticed that this is how it's done. It won't happen in Lagos, in in Ajegule. It's what happened in Makodi, in Minister, because everybody wants to go. You know, so it's a culture, you know, and stuff. But and this is not just this is not just Nigeria, you know. While going through this study, I kind of realized that it is so similar to other cultures. The people in Vietnam, uh, India, you know, China, living out here, you know, I just I read through all these studies and I I could see the similarities and 
you know. So it's just the whole concept of moving to another country and being the first one there. You have to, you know, you have to be an adult in a, in a country where um, you didn't really know anything. And that's why well, the emphasis, you know, on first generation and assimilation. Okay. Good. So if you don't mind, can you share some of your findings? What, what were some of these findings? How did being a first generation, uh, um, is it American now? So what were those factors that affected first generation Americans, in a sense? Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, so what um, it, it's, so what actually affect, affects the assimilation is it's just is because we are so, um, we are so hardcore, we believe so much in our culture. You know, and like I was saying earlier, you know, it is with every other culture. It is hard to change what you, 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 you have grown up to know all your life. And the bottom line is, you, you, you grow up knowing something and living in in a particular way of life that, as an adult, you come and now it's so hard for you to change all of that. And you know, you're just being thrown out there. You're just being thrown out there. It's not like second generation where your parents, you know begin to train you that hey this is how you interact with people this is how you 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 interact in school this is how you talk this is you you just learn like it's like learning on the job you know you're going out there and you're making mistakes and you're learning from those mistakes that you're making so it's it's um it's there's so many barriers these barriers could be you know even um you know diction it could be even you know the words we use how they mean you know to others and uh you know, there's just, uh, there's this, um, I'm trying to look for a specific example, but there's some specific words that you can't actually use in the United States, but you can use in Nigeria or expressions, how they mean different things and you learn and then you say something and someone laughs at you and you wonder, why are you laughing? That's supposed to be normal. And and even out here, you know, and, and just how to, even jokes and, you know, jokes and, we, we, we grew up in a culture where race wasn't so much of a big deal because everyone around you was pretty much as black as you were. Um, and, you know, if you white people, you will come across every now and then. But uh, moving to a, a whole, a very diverse um, country that, you know, race is so much of a big deal. And I remember at my first job in the in the U.S., I was, uh, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine and then... Uh, uh, he asked me that, hey, uh, can he call me the N-word? I'm like, yeah, yeah, not a problem. Yeah, at, at, at the time, I was like, oh, because he thought that were cool. And then, you know, all of a sudden, he was like, oh, my N-word. I'm like, you know, so, but when he said it, he actually kind of sounded wrong. You know, but at first, you know, I didn't really see, I, I couldn't really understand it. I couldn't really grasp what um, what he actually really meant. And you know, coming to understand that people could look, uh, the, the complexions could look similar, but then they are actually different cultures. You know, someone is, is white, another is Hispanic, you know, another is Asian. You know, another you need to live with a lot of people for you to actually understand that um, this race is different. This he he can look as, uh, as as white as the other, but he is actually not really white. You know, so just having to understand this concept and learning on quote and unquote on the job, you know, like I said. Yeah. So when so in, in your finding, did did you see if there was any effects um, on marriages? I don't know if any, if you if you looked into that. 
Well, as far as first generation, yes, it, it kind of, there kind of is. Because, well, like I said, we come in with that, that mindset from home where in majority of the houses um, back home, you know, the man is the breadwinner and the wife is, uh, the wife is the stay at home mom, you know, so to speak. And then, so you move to a different culture where it actually always makes sense, you know, when they're, you know, the, the, both of the couples are, are pulling weight and bringing in resources to, to help because even um, it, 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 it's harder to, it's easier if you're trying to survive on uh, two incomes, you know, so most times it's the men, you know, trying to understand the fact that, you know, the dynamic here is different. Now the wife has to step up and the wife stepping up means she's going to put in in hours in the, the workplace and that limits how much she'll be able to do at home. Um, so just understanding that there has to be a balance that, you know, because she she's working almost as much as you are, then um, there's a, you, you have to pull some weight while working, while, while at home also. And the wife also realizing that, you know, because you're working this much and um, you are making this much, you know, doesn't um, reduce the respect that uh, you're supposed to have uh, for your husband. You know, which goes both ways. The husband has to respect the wife also, even if she's working or not. But it's just, it, 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 it's having to understand that. I think, you know, there's a lot that goes in there. There's like a whole different conversation, but uh, it, it's just a lot. Just having to understand that, you know, it is not the same. You know, for second generation, they will grow up seeing their parents being already um, acculturated. You know, but for first generation, it's hard to understand that. You know, this is something that I had already have spoken so much about. Um, it happens so much. I think someone with the people, someone discussed, you know, the fact that, you know, Nigerian female nurses being killed in the United States or in, you know, in the Western cultures because um, the man comes out here, the man brings the woman to the United States and he's doing, you know, blue collar jobs and he's paying for her to go to school and then she goes to school and she becomes a nurse and then she's making all this money and then, um, two things. One, the man feels because I brought you to school, because I brought you to the United States, I expect that you should be giving me, you know, all your earnings mm-hmm. or a significant portion of the earnings. And, you know, the wife, as much as, you know, she understands that she will be doing that, feels like, oh, I am the breadwinner now. So um, the respect for you has been reduced, you know, to a place where I will be home. So uh, both parties actually have a very, very significant role to play. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to, um, going deep and not have time to talk about the other part so i'm not so i am not being misconstrued but it's actually a two people thing and there's a lot of communication that needs to be done within you know the family to actually make it work but that's that's a whole different conversation yes i i agree that it is a whole different um conversation thanks um so much for for some of the things that you've You've said so far. I think the the communication is is key and having that balance. And so, of course, we we do have those those challenges. And I love the way you have put it in such a way that you are not casting blame to mm-hmm. any sex. Mm-hmm. You know, um, men have their own parts to play. The women have their own parts to play, and they just needs to come to that mutual understanding. Mm-hmm. And and so. When we look at marriages, do you think, just your thoughts on it, do, do you think that our children will have 
more successful marriages than we have um, because they have they are second generation. Well, I'm not necessarily um, more successful. Um, I mean, without looking at our children, we can look at you know the current second generation. So there's no cookie cutter approach when it comes to some of these things. Mm. It actually it really depends on the individual. There are first generation American uh, Nigerians living in America and other words in the world that are killing it. Anything, mm. everything they're doing, be it um, they're like top notch, and you know, even in their homes, their marriages, they're doing fine. There is mm. a love, there is affection, and you know, I think because you know they said uh, bad news travels faster. There, there's more concentration on you know the negative part of the marriages, but there are lovely marriages out there, and a very nice Nigerian man out here, you know, in the United States. Um, you know, that's the more, that's what I can speak of. Even the United States, but I've seen very good families, and I've gone to I've gone to household where there's like first generation older men. I'm talking in their sixties and seventies, working with their wives, mm. and they're first generation, and they're old. They're living in the, the United States, you know. So there's no cookie cutter approach to it. If um if if, if, if you're fifth generation Nigerian you, in America, you want to be stupid, you're going to be stupid. The, the, the wife wants to be, she will be also. And living in a, being second generation in, a, in America doesn't necessarily mean your, your marriage is going to be better. Sometimes it's actually even worse because, I mean, there's just so many other things that can go wrong based on how you are brought up. But in all of this, uh, the, your upbringing, your orientation, your, your, your childhood, your parenting, plays a very, very important role. Because like, you know, even if you have twins, you you, you give it to twins, they grow up and two of them are, are not the same. They're actually completely very different. No matter how you try to feel like, oh, there's a lot of connection, they're very, very different because we give it to children and we imprint on the children. So it's what you imprint on that child that is gonna, uh, his, whatever it is that he's gonna tend to grow up to be and also. What that child experiences while growing up at that tender age, what his environment looks like, who he interacts with, is going to lead to what he's going to become. He's going to be um, a woman leader, even if you're second, fifth generation, you're going to do it. The wife is going to be the, the one to be maybe the man leader or whatever you want to call it, whichever generation. So I'm saying this to say there's no cookie cutter approach to that, except there's a research that speaks otherwise about it that I haven't come across, uh, I don't think I'll necessarily say yes to that question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you, you put it out there, that there are successful marriages out there that are even first generation, because our listeners need to hear that, that it's, it's very possible. You also address the media frenzy of bad news. I think mm. in one of our podcasts, we did say that um, um, bad news sells. And mm. because bad news sells, it, it goes faster. Nobody hears about good news anymore because it's just like, you know, mm. uh, how is that going to sell our market? It needs mm. to be bad for it to go, go far. So yeah, Think about it. You say you put up the news headline, Mr. Phillips loves his wife. And then, you know, the typical Nigerians say, not today. You know, say, 
Mr. Phillips beat his wife. And everybody's click, 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 click. I knew it. You know what? You know, it's, that's, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really how it, it works. Yeah. You know, um, the month of November is, is kind of considered Men International Day, I think, uh, um, November mm. 19th, actually. Mm. And of course, we also have November where people tend to grow their mustache. Um, and I think also the cancer and all that. Mm. And, and I think also connecting to, to the mental health of men. Now, my question is, the, when it comes to African men, do they seek help you know, with their mental health in the diaspora? Do you think there's any difference between the way men seek help back in Africa, in Nigeria, and the way they seek help when it comes to their mental health in, in the diaspora in the United States. Talking about difference, I um, I need to uh, really compare to know if there's a difference, but I know uh, typically um, Nigerian men, and I would like to say African men are not uh, therapy, you know, because um, we, we, we uh, one, we don't believe we have a problem. Um, it's hard to actually accept that you have a problem. So, they, they feel they'll be looked upon as a sissy, you know, going into, you know, therapeutic session and having to, you know, talk about your problems and even cry. I um, I um, have had people come into my session. I actually worked with an, an African who felt, who said uh, he, the last time he cried was when he was 11 years old, you know, and stuff. And he was saying it, you know, as a big deal and all. And uh, the idea wasn't to, you know, get him to cry. Actually, it was as but I was glad that I, I saw him cry in such and that, you know, that was a, you know, that was a big deal for me and, uh, and him also. You know, but um, we, there's a lot that goes into that. We, we just don't want to be vulnerable. We just don't want to, you know, go out there and, um, and, and, and make someone just look at us as, 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 as being weak. We see it as, we see it differently. We don't want to go to therapy. We don't want to be vulnerable. Feel like we don't need support. And if you need support, who are you to think you will be the one to give me the support? Like they feel, you know, no one else is actually qualified to tell them one about themselves or even their relationship. I feel like I can handle this. What can you tell me that I don't already know? Um, it's it's been more than a decade since I left Nigeria and uh, I only travel when, uh, when I go out there, I spend just about a week or two and, and I'm out. So um, I, I don't really know how um, um, how Nigerian men, you know, um, see therapy now. You know, but the last time when I was there, it wasn't um, very, very, uh, it wasn't common. Now I'm happy that, you know, when I see online, I, I see some of these things. I see people talk about it. People speak out about it. It's funny that more women speak about it than men do even on social media and not just in Nigeria, but even on Nigerians in the diaspora. And you know, like I said, I was so happy when uh, when they were, um, you know, where the platform, we met the mental conversation in the platform. It was such a big deal. I went out every time, you know, that, um, that, that group, um, the Zoom call that they saw more than a hundred people on that call. A lot of them, majority of them, living in Nigeria. So it's it's actually a big deal now. These conversations are being hard, you know. So um, that's 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 a big deal. But um, yeah, I think um, there's more awareness to it now than there was in the past. 
Yeah, that, that's that's um, yes. I I think there's more there's more awareness, and and I think more guys are or more men are coming out to to speak. I, I know in the mental conversation um, groups, I think um, someone had asked the question about um, why is it that men don't even reply, they don't respond. You ask, oh, bros, how you doing? It's just like I'm fine. We we just stay. And but when you when you really really ask, then they tend to open up depending on who they are speaking to. I don't know if you want to talk more on that, why men generally are kind of resisting to, to open up their hearts to beat even to other men or even to their wives. I, I remember the first day I cried before my wife. You know, at, at times men feel that, you know, crying before a lady is weak. But you, but I noticed that she respected me even more for doing for doing that, for just being vulnerable before before her. <laughs> and like you said, Nigerian men don't cry. <laughs> we we yeah. have to hold it in. <clears throat> so, so so do you mind just maybe from your experience why you think men don't want to be vulnerable? Yeah, so um I think it's a whole macho thing, you know, just every every man feels like it needs to be matured. Once you cry, um, it takes away the whole uh, macho thing, you know, away from you. And you know, the whole crying in front of your wife, you know, that's a, that's a big deal, and you know, that's very powerful. And um, you know, I like that um, you you see it differently from how a lot of other men do. But at the same time, you have to have a supportive wife to be able to cry in front of them. You know, because I um it's just sad to say, but I've seen you know other women who have you know the same kind of um, um thinking like some of these men that we're talking of that believe that their husband you know is macho and not supposed to be crying. So when they see you cry, uh, in majority of the cases, you know the women probably will respect you like you like yours did, but other women who might actually you know see you differently, like oh you're crying and. I know everyone respect that emotion that is coming out of you. It, it is it is a very very powerful emotion. You know when when you are able to cry and be that vulnerable and be that open presence of you know out you know, someone you love and all of that. But sometimes it's not just the crying part. It's just um, you just don't want to just want to go out you know crying in the presence of everybody. You know how does that how you know it's, how does the crying actually really help you? You know, no, and you know, see, we don't take therapy because we actually feel we don't have a problem that, that someone can help us with. I remember when I first got into the profession, I, uh, you know, my one of my professors mentioned that if uh, we're going to be seeing people, then we need to seek therapy also and just to understand how the process work, works. I, my, my first therapeutic session, I went in there and I told our therapist that, hey, uh, when she was like, so, you know, what's going on with you? I'm like, nothing, like, I'm good, I'm healthy. Um, even a very good life. I am just here because my professor feels um, I need to come to therapy. Now, as the sessions kept going, I found out that there was just so much that I needed to unload. You know, I know I, I go in there, I cry when I need to cry, you know, talk about stuff. And it, it was so relieving crying, you know, um, um, I'm crying. And and for me, I don't know where that even came from. I remember when I lost my mom, I was at a funeral and everyone was crying and I wasn't crying. 
my dad walked up to me and tapped me and asked me, what is, asked me, what am I doing? Like, Brian, what are you doing? I'm like, what? I said, why are you not crying? I said, I don't feel like crying. You know, he said, stop what you're doing. And then he walked away. I got home, I got home and then I cried and cried. And I was very close to my mom. So I don't know what I thought I was doing at the time, but now that I think about it, it's like really, really stupid. You know, so men just feel they have to be macho, they feel um, men just need to realize that it's actually okay to cry. There's nothing wrong, you know, breaking down, There's nothing wrong being being vulnerable, being um, um needing support from someone, needing, you know, someone to help you out. But, uh, you know, like I said, it's just not Nigerians, it's in, you know, other cultures also, you know, but I've interacted with a lot of Nigerians that I know that they feel it takes away the whole macho thing away from them that it's hard for them to open up and cry. Thank you for listening to the first part of this insightful interview. Please tune in next week for the concluding part as I know you do not want to miss it. Before you go, would you love to hang out with us in real time once a month, live? Would you love to hang out with a growing tribe of like-minded, courageous individuals who are intentional about building stronger marriages while raising a family, especially in the African diaspora? Then, you're welcome to join the Happy Married Family Tribe. The Happy Married Family Tribe is a supportive online community that provides a safe space for like-minded parents and intending parents to connect, collaborate, and encourage each other as they continue to grow in their marriages while navigating 21st century parenthood. To join our community, click on the WhatsApp link in the episode show notes to join the Happy Married Family Tribe. We're looking forward to having you in our growing tribe and connecting with you. God bless you and yours. Shalom. If you like that and mom show, please don't forget to leave them a review to, to spread, spread the love. Hi friend. If this podcast has inspired you or you found value in today's episode, one of the best ways to thank us is to leave a written review in our Apple podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Also, please feel free to share this episode on your social media channels. And together, let's join the happy African marriage movement as we work together to break the cycle of managing or enduring marriages for our children and the next generations after them. Remember, the state of our marriages today can impact our future generations. Shalom.